Hey, First Church, we're excited to have a guest speaker this morning. Mike Ackerman is the professor of New Testament and church planning at Ozark Christian College. And honestly, I've never had the chance or the opportunity to hear Mike speak, but I've heard a lot of good things. And so I'm excited to have him with us today, and I can't wait to hear his message. Mike is married to his wife, Erin. They have three boys, and they've ministered in several different states as well as the country of Japan. And I know that you will be touched with what he has to say. So let's put our hands together and let's give a warm First Church welcome to Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I'm grateful to be with you this morning and share from the Word of God. This is my first chance to be here, um, but I've heard of this church uh, since many years ago. I've known of this church for a long time. When I first showed up at Ozark Christian College as a freshman student, one of the first guys I got to know in the dorm was actually from this church, and uh, he was a couple years older than me, took me under his wing, and and I even went home with him on a few occasions. And I remember one night we went to a high school football game. Again, uh, it was Owasso versus Union. And I found out you guys have some high school football around here. It was uh, a pretty amazing scene to see how many people show up. And uh, I thought we played some football. But it was, it was impressive. It's almost that time of year again. So I was thinking about that. But uh, during my time as a student, I continued to meet students that came from this co- uh, church. And I thought, man, something's going on at First Church. Now that I've been back teaching at the college, I've had a number of students from this church, and I just want to commend you for the legacy of reaching your community as well as mobilizing people to serve God wherever He might lead them. And I can think off the top of my head of a number of young people who have grown up at this church and are now serving God in, in all kinds of environments. And so, Keep doing what you're doing, and I'm grateful to be here uh, to hopefully contribute in some small way to what God is doing in this place. And we want to give a shout out to those at the Stone Canyon uh, campus, as well as those joining us online. And we are beginning this series, Things the Bible Doesn't Say. There's some things we might think are in there, and, and they just aren't. And so this is an opportunity to clarify some of these important ideas. In some cases, maybe there's not something too big at stake. For example, the Bible does not tell us how many wise men there were at the birth of Jesus, how many wise men came to visit Jesus. We just don't know how many there was. We know that there was three different kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there could have been four or five of the guys. We don't know. Uh, But it's probably okay if we don't know, right? Maybe not too much at stake there. I know for a long time I thought uh, it was in the Bible this saying, uh, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, what? Feed him for a lifetime. I thought that was in the Bible. Sounds like that'd be in Proverbs or something. Turns out that is an ancient Chinese proverb. A lot of people uh, attribute it to Lao Tzu or Lao Tzu. Um, Good wisdom, good idea about empowering people and equipping people. And the Bible does have things to say like that. But, you know, maybe it's, it's okay that I was walking around thinking that was in the Bible and it isn't. Uh, I think of the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. Not in there. The Bible does say things like God's ways are higher than our ways. Um, but actually, it, it tells us a lot of the ways that God does work. He has revealed much of how He works. And so while there are still certain things that are beyond our grasp, uh, if we just kind of throw up our hands and say, God works in mysterious ways, how can we know? Um, maybe there is something at stake there. Well, with this series, we want to tackle some, some big ones, 
some ideas that really do have something at stake. And so I've been given the assignment to talk about this statement that the Bible does not say we are all God's children. The Bible actually does not say we are all God's children. That might be a surprise for some people to hear um, that the Bible doesn't say that. Now, right away, I do want to affirm a few things that the Bible says that are related to this idea. Very important things for us to lay down as some groundwork as we tackle this delicate subject. It does say in the Bible that all people and everything around us have been made by God. God created all people. And actually, there is a verse that gets pretty close to saying we are all his children in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is in Athens, and he's talking to the intellectual elites of the day, the philosophers in, in Athens, Greece, and he says in Acts chapter 18, or 17, verse 28, from your own prophets, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now he's quoting from two different philosophers, Epimenides and Aratus, and he's saying, in some ways, these guys were on the right track. And he's actually countering some of the creation myth that dominated the Greek philosophers, was that, that the, the creation just kind of emerged out of nothing, and then there was a couple gods, and those gods started procreating, and here we all are. And he was saying, actually, Aratus was on the right track when he said we are his offspring in that everything has its source in God. Nothing made God. And in, he'll, in fact, he'll go on to say that is why it would be absurd to think that the gold and silver and stone idols that he sees all around him in Athens would be something we should be bowing down and worshiping. He's saying, actually, it's worth affirming we were made by God, not the other way around. And when we uh, were serving in Japan, I was a church planner in Japan before I came back to teach at Ozark Christian College, and in Japan they have a similar creation myth to the ancient Greek philosophers. And so this same point was important for us to clarify. Creation didn't make God, God made creation. And in the Japanese version of it, the, the earth was kind of a watery uh, planet with no form, and then eventually some soil emerged from the water. Out of that soil, a little sprout grew. Out of that sprout, a god blossomed. And then that god had other gods and made some definition to the creation. So it's worth affirming God made us. And so therefore, there is some value and, and importance that each and every person has because he made us. And in fact, the Bible goes on further to say that humanity in particular, of course, has been made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so it's worth affirming as we clarify this important subject that humanity is special among God's creatures, that He has given us a special capacity to relate to Him, a special ability to reason, a special stewardship within the creation to take care of it. And so each and every one of us has been distinctly made in God's image. And I think this is important to clarify because when we say that the Bible is, says that we are not all God's children, we might be saying, wait a second, are you saying some people are more important than other people, some are better than another? Of course not. And this 
idea from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is so important for us to hang on to that each and every person, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter what they smell like, they are made in God's image and, and worth something to Him. And in fact, the Bible also does say that God cares about all people. He is concerned about everyone. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Good and evil people alike are within God's realm of concern and he provides for them and cares for them and wants to see the best for them. But the Bible does not say we all are all in his family. It does not say that we all have that distinct relationship of father and son. In fact, the Bible says that our starting point is pretty far from him. And as we'll see, it says that status as his children is something granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we can say that all people can become God's children. It is a hopeful statement that it's possible for each and every one of us in this room, each and every one of us on this planet, to become his children. But our starting place is pretty far from him. And we're going to look at a variety of verses as we explore this, but to give our mind somewhere to kind of anchor itself, let's read from Titus chapter 3. In Titus 3, we have a compressed version of really what the, the spiritual journey of all of us if we become his children, where we start and where we end up. And so it's a helpful place to just get our minds around what the Bible says in a variety of ways, in a variety of places about what is possible for us. It says it this way. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So the way that passage starts is essentially a biography of all of humanity. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Not a pretty picture, but it's saying at some point we all start with a lack of, of knowledge about God and His mercy. We, we, we're foolish. We don't know Him. And we're disobedient. Even what we know, we go against it. And each and every one of us, if we are honest about it, know that at some point in our lives, we said, okay, I know this would be good, and I'm going to do the other thing. We're disobedient. We're deceived. Each of us, at some point in our life, has gaps or distortions in our knowledge of God and His will, and, and that's just how we navigate things by our own power. And we are enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. It's just not our knowledge, it's actually our whole will. We can't seem to help but do evil. We can't seem to help but do the things 
that we know we ought not, and we can't seem to do the things that we know we ought. This is our story. The way it says it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, is that we are enemies of God by our natural disposition. The way it says it in Ephesians 2, verse 3, is that we are objects of wrath. A couple verses later, Ephesians 2, verse 5, it says we are dead in our transgressions. Not a pretty picture. And maybe for some of us today who have not yet put our faith in Jesus Christ, today can be this wake-up call. Maybe it's jarring. Maybe it's awkward to find out you are not a child of God yet. We want to say today can be the day that you can become a child of God. I think of a friend of mine who was going about her business, just a normal day at work, and someone passing by, having a quick conversation with her, said, excuse me, you have a lump on your neck. And she was like, well, I know, but why are you pointing it out? That's kind of uncomfortable. Well, he's a doctor, and he says, no, actually, I'm very concerned. You need to have that checked out. She immediately goes in and has it tested. Turns out she has thyroid cancer. She's just in her 20s, young, young lady, healthy otherwise. Kind of a jarring, awkward experience, normal day at work. It's not fun to have somebody point out, you might have something wrong with you. But in fact, that was the very thing she needed to hear that day. And I'm happy to say that just this past week, she hit one year cancer-free. It's possible to say, okay, I'm going to hear the wake-up call and I'm going to respond accordingly. And that is what God wants for each of us. He wants for us to become His children. And Titus 3 says it, that it is possible for us to experience the washing and renewal of rebirth through the Holy Spirit. Here's how it says it in John chapter 1. In verse 12 and 13, it says, Yet to all who receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. New birth. And of course, it's a couple chapters later when He will say to Nicodemus, anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God needs to be what? Born again. A new birth. God doesn't want to just clean us up a little bit. He doesn't want to just tweak a few things here and, here and there. He wants to give us a whole new life. Here's how it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You are sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So while our natural state isn't a pretty picture, the possibility of new life in Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing. And if we have ears to hear and if we can receive it, we can become children of God and not just barely in, but full-fledged sons and daughters of the King. Back to Titus 3, the way it says it is that having been justified by His grace, we become heirs. An heir is someone who receives all the rights and privileges of a legitimate child, they receive the inheritance. Every good thing that belongs to the Father belongs to His heirs. And Paul says in Titus chapter 3 that those of us who have experienced this rebirth, we are full-fledged recipients of His inheritance. Here, as well as elsewhere, it, it alludes to this language of adoption. It's as if we were found by God and brought in as His own through adoption. And I've had the privilege of knowing a number of families who've adopted kids, and it's in every case a beautiful picture 
of the way God deals with each of us. Before an adoption process, is that person a part of that family? No. Not legally, not biologically, not emotionally. But they are brought in. And they are made not just guests who are very welcome at the table, but family. I think of uh, one family in particular, the Greer family. These were some of my coworkers when we were in Japan, and uh, they are still there. And here's a picture of their family. You can see one is not quite like the other. They also need a lot of sunscreen as a family, and, uh, and they all have lights hair and, and uh, except one, one right there in the middle, little Mac, cute, adorable, lively young kid who before an adoption process was not a part of their family. And it's a beautiful thing to hear Jay talk about his son Mac because that's his son. That's not a welcome guest at the table. That is not a visitor, that is his son. And actually, it's very rare in Japan for non-Japanese people to adopt Japanese kids. Another, a lot of the other Asian countries have made it a lot easier. But the regulations and, and cultural dynamics have made it very difficult. 18 months of process, lots of money, lots of effort, lots of paperwork. They love paperwork in Japan. Stamps and all kinds of certificates that you need to show. After that long, effortful process, Mac was brought in as a new member of their family. And when Jay talks about this, he likes to emphasize, guess what? Mac didn't help with the process at all. A little freeloader. <laughs> because that is what it is for each of us to be adopted by God. It is not because of any righteous thing we have done, Titus 3. It's because of His mercy. It is... Because he has a vision for including us that is beyond anything we could have imagined. That rather than being enemies who are foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved, we are heirs. We are joined in with his son. And that the things that he says of Jesus, he imparts to us. You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. He says that of us. Our destiny is now forever intertwined with the destiny of the Son. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Reigning forever. Peace on earth and, and all through His creation eventually. We reign with Him. All the blessings of eternal life are ours in Christ Jesus, Paul says, because we have been made heirs. And so going back to Titus 3, I want to... I want to give some affirmations and implications of what it means to be a child of God. Because if we're not careful, if we say everyone is a child of God, well, then what is so distinct and unique about the work of Christ? These are things that have been accomplished for us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As children of God, we can have peace knowing we have been reconciled to God and each other. We were aliens and strangers and enemies who are now reconciled. We were far away, separated from Him, but now we've been brought close. And we can have that peace and assurance and deep knowledge and certainty that God accepts us through Christ Jesus. Not because of any righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. And we can begin to learn to see Him as our loving Father. And if you're anything like me, that 
is a lesson that takes some learning. Because I didn't know my father. I didn't have a a loving father in the home. In fact, my birth certificate, the spot where it says father is blank. It says none given. My mom was single when she had me. My biological father was married to someone else. And uh, he wanted to have me aborted because I was a real problem in the situation with his other family. Uh, My mom rejected that. She had to get a restraining order against him to make sure that he didn't take matters into his own hands and end my life. So to think of God as a loving father takes some work for me. And maybe it takes some work for you because of experiences you've had. But through the work of Christ, not because of how I feel about it, not because of things that I've done to earn it, but because of his mercy, God looks at me and he looks at you and he sees his son. The righteousness The approval he has of Jesus, he has bestowed on us because of the union we have with him through faith. And we can be at rest. We can know that we're good. We're good with God. That we can boldly approach him as a child approaches their father. That we can be in his presence and act like we own the place. Because in a sense we do. Anything that belongs to him belongs to us. And I'm so grateful that God has continued to teach me about his fatherly love through having my own kids. I've got three sons, uh, 12, 10, and 8, so constantly breaking up fights, and there's a lot of burping and other things going on, and, and it's a party at all times. I love my sons. They're mine. Do they always do what I tell them to do? No. Do they always do exactly what Aaron and I would wish for them? Do they always treat each other with the perfect kindness that they ought to as as brothers? Of course not. Does that change anything about the fact that they're mine? Not even a second. Nothing about that has anything to do with whether they're mine or not. They are mine. And God looks at you and he looks at me When we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and he says, you're mine, we're good. You're good with me and the possibility is now here for us to be good with each other. And it's a a topic for another day, but the implications of this are huge. That in Christ, a new family is possible where, where every tribe, tongue, and nation, where every people, where every socioeconomic level, where every race, where every hobby group can come together as one outside of the faith there's political alliances and business partnerships and and affinity groups who have the same interests but in the faith there is a new family and you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ and I just I just loved on an average Sunday at the church I used to preach at in Japan being able to look out and see seven or eight different nationalities people from all different kinds of backgrounds and cultures, yet in Christ, because of the bond of the Spirit, we have the same Father, the same Spirit poured out on each of us, we can have peace with one another as well. There's no hope for peace outside of the faith. There's no political activism. There's no social uh, network. There is no community action group that can bring us together the way Jesus Christ can. Amen? And so we can be at peace with God and we can be at peace with one another.
because of our adoption as his beloved children. We can also have a hope because of the inheritance stored up for us, eternal life. Paul says that we have been given this hope of eternal life. Jesus has died and raised from the dead. He has conquered death, never to go to the grave again. He is indestructible. 1 Corinthians 15 says that our bodies will be like His, incorruptible, undestructible, uh, never-ending, never-withering, never-tiring. And that's what you and I have to look forward to. We can have a confidence and an optimism in the middle of any situation because we are heirs having the hope of eternal life. We can know, no matter how bad it gets, what belongs to the Father belongs to us. And those who have had adopted kids, one of the most hurtful things that that someone could say to them is, is to make a differentiation between their real kids and their adopted kids, right? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I know they're all your kids, but you get your real kids and then your adopted kids. No, 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 no. These are my kids. Everything that I have belongs to all of them. Every hope and dream I have for my family includes them. And because our destiny is woven in so intimately with the destiny of Jesus Christ, we can have a certain bold assurance in any and every situation. I remember visiting one day with a a lady after a church meeting and there were some some things that came up in the meeting that sparked some thoughts for her. And and she asked me after, after this meeting, she said, can we talk for a second? You know, we talked about some things, some ideas about the nature of salvation and, and who's saved and, and all these kinds of things. And, and she said, do you think I'm saved? Now, this lady is 87 years old. She has believed in Jesus Christ since she was a child. She served him with her whole life. But here's the thing. As an 87-year-old, she had already seen her uh, husband pass away. She had seen a brother pass away. But since then and now, she's actually seen a daughter pass away from cancer and has outlived them all. And the reality of her own mortality is an inescapable thing that faces her every day. And in light of that, after years of faith in Jesus Christ, she's saying, can I, can I know for sure? Can I feel confident? And I felt confident from the words of Scripture and from the Lord to say, Beverly, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that He died and rose from the dead to be able to grant eternal life? She said, yes, of course. Beverly, not because of any righteous thing you have done, not because I am so smart, but because of the Word of God, I can tell you, you can have confidence before the Lord. You can have hope in the face of death. No matter what life throws at you, you can be a person of fierce hope and strength because of the work of Christ Jesus. Because you are an heir. Everything that God has promised you can count on is coming to you. Now I have to admit, I have my days. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. Right? Feel a little something? Oh, I'm sure it's cancer. You know? I... You know, feel a little bit tired, I was, you know, it's probably, probably a brain tumor, I don't know. 
You know, I've got to admit, sometimes I let my imagination get away from me. And I'm convicted because the Christian life, the life of those who have been appointed as heirs to the king, should be a confident life, knowing that we are indestructible. Yeah, this body fades. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, it's like a tent. You know, you roll up a tent after a camping trip. But we have a dwelling we will look forward to that will never fade, will never corrupt. That's the confidence you and I can have. The Christian life should be an aggressive, confident life because we know whose we are. We're an heir of the king. And so we can have peace before God. We can have hope because of eternal life. And it should have some kind of impact on the way we live. In Titus chapter 3, he says that these are the kinds of things that we should emphasize so that our people will devote themselves to doing what is good. We should be compelled to live obediently to the will of God, not so that we can earn His favor. We've already talked about that. Not so we can secure for ourselves some sort of future hope, but as an expression of gratitude and as a natural outworking of our identity as His children. Here's how it says it in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We should be compelled to live obediently because we're loved. We're at peace. There is no more burden of responsibility or grasping for approval from God when we understand we're in error. There's only the grateful joy of this working itself out in our lives obediently. Have you ever noticed how families have a little culture? They have the way they do things. And maybe even in our parenting, we might say, well, our family does this as we try to enculturate our kids. Here's what our family's about. You know, we've got various little slogans in our family, like selfishness is always wrong. It's just one of the things I like to say to my kids. Selfishness is always wrong. See, because they want to get into the details, right? Well, he hit me, and then I took this, but it was merely out of self-defense, and it was only a very measured response appropriate for what he did to me. No, he hit me, and then I hit him, and all out of control it goes. And I just cut through it, and I say, wait a second. Selfishness is always wrong. Are you doing it from selfishness? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, that's just one of the things we live by as a family. Selfishness is always wrong. So if it comes from selfishness, don't do it. That's a, that's a cultural mantra we have as a family. Some families have the way they do bedtime or the way they eat dinner or whatever. Well, our family is, has a culture defined by our Father. And it says in Ephesians 5 there, much like it does in Titus 3, as dearly loved children... Be like your father. Why? Because I have to? Why? Because if I don't, he will cast me out of the family? Why? Because if I don't, things won't be as successful for me in life? As dearly loved children, be imitators of God. The appropriate motivation for obedience is a healthy understanding of whose we are. We belong to him. He loves us. He has saved us. What else would make sense other than to live a life of active obedience, fitting with the culture of our King and our Father and our Lord. We should just build a little bit of heaven every day here 
And as we pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live out that very will. We're no longer enslaved by the passions and pleasures of this world. We've been set free to live like him. And he made us. He made us in his image. He cares for all people. And so some of what it makes sense is for us to care for all people. To seek out finding other people who can be his children. I can't help but hear this joyful description of what it is for you and I to be his children than to think, man, everybody ought to hear about this. Every, everybody ought to take advantage of this. And so if you feel a little sinking concern when we say we are not all God's children, I hope you realize that part of God's design is that once we become God's children, we go out and try to help everybody else join us. This community and the people around the world who have not yet heard that it is possible to be a beloved child of God, it's our job to tell them. Frankly, it does no good for us to just let them go on thinking, I guess it's probably all fine. We're all probably all God's children. No, but you can become one. And maybe you're here today and, and this is the wake-up call. This is this jarring, awkward moment where we say you are not a child of God, but you can be. Today can be the day that you take that step of faith and you say, I want to be adopted. I want to take advantage of the gift of Jesus Christ that's been made available to me. Today can be that day that you take that step of faith. And if you're here and you are a child of God because you have been united with Christ through faith, I hope you feel peace, I hope you feel hope, and I hope you feel motivation to obey Him. Not out of burden, but out of gratitude as a, and as an expression of love. I hope you go out of here with a sense of tenacity that, that as His children, we, we're on mission and we have something to do in this life. And it's not any longer about the slavery to sin or the, uh, the fear of judgment, but but the confidence that knows that we know we're, we're destined for eternity with Him. Let's go get as many other people as we can to join us. Let's go live a godly life that reflects the values and culture of our Father. Let's live in the hope and peace that comes from knowing we belong to Him. And right now, let's pray that God would help us through His Spirit to make it real in our hearts. God, we thank You that through Jesus Christ, we can become your children. And I pray that anyone who's here today and, and is hearing that if they have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they are not your child, I pray that they're not offended, but I pray that they hear it as a welcome invitation to join the family. And I pray that if we are in, that we would truly have that sense of peace and assurance today. That we know it's not because of any righteous things we have done. It's not because we are innately better than anybody, but it's because we have taken advantage of the work of Christ through his death and resurrection and that we have been adopted and made heirs of eternal life. Give us hope in the face of every adversity, whether it's illness, whether it's financial setbacks, whether it's relational problems. Help us to know without any wavering that we can have an un shakable hope because of what you have done and what you have made us to be as heirs. And I pray we are motivated to live a faithful and active, obedient life, that we would not be passive or, or mere observers of your work in this world, but that we would join in with the family business 
of seeking to save the lost and binding up the brokenhearted and and bringing comfort to those who are afflicted and bringing peace to areas of chaos. Help us to live this faith out, not because we have to, not because we're earning something, but because we are heirs of the King. And it's all for your glory that we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.